So if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans 7. You received a handout today. You also received one of these double-spaced papers here of Romans 7. This may not be your preferred way to study God's Word. This is a way that I really enjoy. It gives plenty of space and the font's big enough. You can do a lot of marking, uh, a lot of messing with the text, see how things uh, work together and, and how it was originally set up. We're actually in an incredibly depressing part of Romans. So I know you're all very glad that you came today. But Romans 7 is so necessary because of what lays ahead, lies ahead, in Romans 8, which we'll get to next week, and which I'm very excited about getting to. Does the Christian have to keep the law? This has been something that's debated for years, decades. In fact, if you are someone that is familiar with, if I bring up the phrase, the Reformed persuasion, or the Calvinist persuasion, you find that this is actually something that's very much touted in their circles. They have an up-and-coming pastor. It's actually been pretty popular. His name is Kevin DeYoung. And he just came out with a book. Mitch, let's see what the book, I can't even remember the title of it. What is it here? The Ten Commandments, what they mean, why they matter, and why we should obey them. And he wrote this for the church. And here's what it says. The first commandment, like the others, is transformed by the coming of Christ. By transformed, I do not mean that God says, these commandments don't apply to you anymore. But the way they apply, and the way we obey them, does change. Perhaps transposed is even a better word than transformed. When a piece of music is transposed, the melody stays the same, but it's played in a different octave or a different key. That's sort of how the Ten Commandments change from the Old Testament to the New. It's the same score, different key. These commandments are still commandments for the church, but they have all been transposed by the coming of Christ. Are you under the Ten Commandments? How about the next slide? Let's read that one. We still need the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, handed down at Sinai. Have they been changed in some respects by the coming of Christ? For sure. Transformed, but not trashed. We can no longer keep the Ten Commandments rightly unless we keep them in Christ, through Christ, and with a view to the all-surpassing greatness of Christ. As new creations in Christ, the law is not only our duty, but also our delight. If we want to love Christ as he deserves, and as he desires, we will keep the commandments. And that means as we keep in step with the Spirit, not to mention keep in step with most of church history. And if you read this book, that's where he actually gets a lot of his thinking from. It's not the Scriptures. We would do well to remember the the Ten Commandments, which are foundational for all the others. Are we supposed to keep the Ten Commandments? Take your Bibles or take your papers and look at chapter 7, verse 4. And judging from your responses, this is why I'm so labored in Romans 7. I've been studying it for 10 or 11 weeks now. Therefore, my brethren, you are also made to what? I don't believe you. You are also made to what? Die. What does it mean to die? Does anybody see the example? What does it mean to die? Done. 
In fact, biblically, the idea of being dead or dying never means ceasing to be. It means separation, complete separation. So now think about this. You also were made to die to the what? Our friend on the screen is completely wrong. Because when you put people under law, when you put people under an expectation in order to be lived, you find that complete acceptance with God is absolutely impossible unless you perform to the letter. So notice what it says. You were made to die to the law. How? Through the body of Christ. Remember this. When Christ died, you died. He kept the law perfectly and died as our substitution. Because he died, we've died. And we died in him. It says here, why? So that you may be joined to another. Joined to another. Let me ask you a question. Who were we joined to before if we got another out ahead? We were joined to the law. Everybody see why death is necessary? We got to get rid of that old husband. Was he a bad husband? No, we could never please him. We could never please that husband. So now we've died to that husband. We're no longer obligated to perform for acceptance anymore. And now we're in a situation where we're joined to a brand new husband. We got ourselves a brand new husband. I don't know about you. I'm okay with that. Because it's a great husband. He says here, we're joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. You know why that's so revolutionary? Because if you're trying to keep the law, you'll never bear fruit to God. It's impossible. Because keeping the law is what we do apart from the Spirit of God. And if the Spirit's not involved, how in the world are we going to be pleasing? Now, pop quiz, don't fail it. Is the Holy Spirit God? How much? 90%? Okay, 100%. I'm just making sure. I want to make sure we get it. We're not Pentecostals. Don't freak out. But we very much believe the Holy Spirit is God. And if he's God, and if he resides in us, that's how you're pleasing to God. You're pleasing to God because God in you is pleasing to God. Not because we're pleasing God. I will never be pleasing to God. But thank God that what he's done for us in Christ and indwelling us with the Holy Spirit, sealing us for the day of redemption, and the very Lord and Savior lives within us, I'm as pleasing as the day is long. I know that's hard to believe because some of you know me really well. I know Zach's like, hmm. Exact question is theology. How do you bear fruit to God? Because it's God bearing that fruit through you. It's not you doing anything. Everybody remember the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, pause. Whose fruit is it? Spirit's fruit. Notice it's not yours. It's the fruit. It's, it's, it's the Spirit's fruit. It's what he wants to do in us. So this is very controversial. Why? Because we're talking about how do you grow? And when we talk about how we grow as a Christian, we love having laundry lists. We love having obligations. We sometimes call them spiritual disciplines. Now, is there anything wrong with a spiritual discipline? There's nothing wrong with a spiritual discipline if you do it because you've been accepted. 
There's everything wrong with the spiritual discipline if you think you need to do it to be accepted. Does that make sense? Because now you're replacing your performance with the perfect work of Christ. And all that is dead. It's dead. So now, I have a couple of quotes to get us kind of going in our minds here. I can't believe how shoddy it is to try to read this from the screen on the back. Maybe my eyes are getting bad in my old age. I don't know. But let's go to the next one. Yeah, maybe I can read it. Pharisaical legalism was still a very real part of the way of life of believers throughout the empire. They were steeped in the concept of law from the Old Testament. And although they could submit to the principle of justification apart from works, it was farthest from their thinking that righteous living could be promoted apart from the principle of legalism. This was part of their culture and ingrained in their very nature. So it's one thing to say, okay, I'm saved apart from works. I can grasp that. Great. Now, how do you live? Keep 10 commandments. Got to get circumcised. We've got to keep all 613 commandments. Well, you better obey everything in the first five books. Well, sometimes when they use law in the New Testament, they're actually talking about all 39 books of the Old Testament. So we better make sure we got all that in there. Church, you are not Israel. I'm glad I got an amen on that. We're not Israel. The law has one function. You are a sinner. Period. Well, that's why I need Jesus. Yes, I need his blood. And so that cleanses me from sins, the multiple offenses against him. But now I find a great problem in myself as I seek to live for him. Now notice what I said there. As I seek to live for him. What does Paul say? It's no longer I who live, but who? But Christ who lives in me. Everybody see how he did that? Because he understands if he tries to live it, that's a theological term. For the flesh, ain't hacking it. Not going to make it. It's death. It's not going to work. And so I find I've got something deeply ingrained in me that wants to make me sin. Now, yesterday, probably between the hours of 12 and 2, maybe 3, some of you wanted to sin. Some of us wanted to sin. Some of them wanted to sin. That makes us feel good, doesn't it? They wanted to sin. Where's that come from? Everybody notice how your F train gets off the rail real quick? Why is my caboose up front? Emotions everywhere. Worry about the future. I read the headlines. God's still on the throne. We have nothing to fear. In fact, fear is not from God. If we are living in an existence of fear, we are not living according to the truth of God's word. And I'm tired of people rationalizing the fact that we just need medicine or to think positive thoughts. No, we need God's word to renew our mind, period. This trails into the same idea of law keeping. In order to live for the Lord, somehow I've got to perform in some way. Now, I'm real excited today because Vitaly's with us from Ukraine. In fact, you just arrived yesterday. He's fresh off the plane. And I'm excited because during our open forum time after today, he's going to speak and give us updates on his ministry and what's going on. But I heard him say one of the most beautiful Christian growth things I've ever heard earlier. He said, yeah, God's doing a lot of really great things, so we're going to wait and see. 
You're not going to get in there and go after it. You're not going to work yourself hard like a dog. You're not going to go crazy trying every avenue and exhausting yourself. No, I'm going to wait for what God wants and then I'm going to walk forward. That's by the Spirit. That's not the law. The law says, God, what do you need me to do? Life in the Spirit says, God, where are you going so I can go? That's the difference. Next quote. Same guy, Stanley Ellison, brilliant dude. In the previous chapter, that's Romans 6. Everybody remember that? Know that you're dead to sin. Reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus your Lord. And then present your body as alive from the dead. And the members of your body as instruments for his righteousness. There's the prayer of every believer right there. God, I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to you in Christ Jesus my Lord. Use my body today for your glory. There's the prayer of Christian obedience. In the previous chapter, Paul has given several principles of thinking and doing to bring about a life of holy and righteous living. That's how you do it. Just like he told us in six, you say, well, why in the world did he throw seven in there to mess us all up? There's a lot of people that wonder that. These are motivating principles, but motivation is not the whole story. Motivating principles need activating power to get proper performance. And what Paul has to do under the inspiration of the Spirit in Romans 7 is prove to me that I am so weak in myself that I can do nothing. Well, pastor, don't you know that? Weren't you here when you were preaching on John 15? I'm the vine, you're the branches, part for me, do nothing. Don't you remember that? Yeah. Don't you remember Jesus said in John 6, 63, flesh profits nothing? Yeah. Remember what it says in Philippians 3, 3, we put no confidence in the flesh? Yeah. And you remember it too, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you this. Did it stop you from putting confidence in the flesh? No, some of us are still running around like we got chickens with our heads cut off. Wherever we go. You guys know that term up here? Okay. I don't know if it's just Kentucky thing or what. Okay. So I was just running around crazy. What's God want me to do? What's God want me to do? What's God want me to do? Let's take a consensus. What God wants us to do. Hey, that sounds really great. Let's do that. Never waiting on the spirit. Never seeking the Lord. Always doing it in the flesh. And wonder why we're burned out and failing. God allows those things to prove to us you are weak. You are weaker than you think you are. You can do nothing. You can't lift a finger for his glory without the Spirit moving you to do so. And that's the conclusion that we're coming to. Chapter 7, verse 13. We were going through, and surprise, I ran out of time. I know, Vern, thank you. I have the mic. Talking about the desire and the action. What's interesting is Paul is writing a short little autobiographical section, but you suddenly recognize two things. Number one, Paul's bipolar. And number two, he's writing about you and me, as well as himself. We're all in this boat of the flesh. So let's pay attention to what he says. Verse 13, therefore, did that which is good. Anybody remember what that is? The law. Did the law become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was what? Sin. Remember, it's in the singular. Indwelling sin. It's the idea that I have the sin principle 
within me that makes me want to do wrong things. It's one thing to commit sins. It's one thing to see an orange. It comes from a tree. It's one thing to commit sins. Guess what? It comes from a source. And that source is sin. And though the blood of Jesus has dealt with sins, we still got that rooted problem. And Paul's saying we got to deal with it. So it's not the law's fault. Don't blame God's holy word for our misactions, misthoughts, miswords, whatever we want to say, our wrong deeds. He says here, rather it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, through the law, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. In other words, every factor in the equation was good surrounding the circumstances, except me. If I could have just gotten my act together, everything would have fired off on all cylinders. It would have been great. But I recognize that even though the law is really good, the law comes into my life and I say, yeah, I just don't need to murder people. I just don't need to lie. I need to obey my mother and father. I need to love the Lord my God. All of these wonderful things, no idols before him. And next thing I find out, everything is pouring out of me to want to run in the opposite direction. Why? Because the flesh can't be told no. The flesh cannot be told no. And the reason why it happens, notice what it says there. It says, so that sin would become utterly sinful, so that there would not be a question left on the table of how destitute I am to try to live for Christ in my own power. Does everybody see that Paul is teaching us that God wants us to stop doing that? Does everybody see that? I'm not convinced. Do you see, if you try to keep the law as a Christian, try it sometime. Try it. Let's use Paul's example. Thou shalt not, I mean, do it in King James if you're going to do it. Thou shalt not covet. What does covet mean? No, come on. Use the word that we talked about last week. Lust. Lust. And that doesn't mean just solely in a sexual sense. That means that you want that car, you want those shoes, you want that purse. I wish I had that vacation home. Whatever it is. Don't lust. This week, everybody's assignment, don't lust. Don't do it. Okay. Just letting you know. You all can, you all can look at my cell phone number in the, in the handout. Just text me whenever you're like, I blew it. Let me know. Because I plan on getting 100 something texts this week. Before you leave the building. Okay, you see what I'm saying? It's almost absurd. And yet we still run in that direction. So don't blame God's law. What the law wants to show you is how utterly sinful you are. Aren't you glad you came to church? Verse 14, for we know that the law is what? It's spiritual. And I am of flesh. I am carnal. Like a baby believer, like somebody who's been a baby believer for much, much longer than they should have. They should have grown past these things. But nope, I remained an infant in the faith. That's my problem. Sold into bondage to sin. For what I'm doing, there's the action, I do not understand. For I am not practicing, there's the action, what I would like to do. There's the desire or the will. I want to do good things but I just can't do it. I know I should evangelize to my family. I know they need Christ. Thanksgiving's coming up, yeah? Anybody praying for open doors to share the gospel? 
That's a way to do it. That's a way to do it. Lord, open the doors of conversation so that I can talk about the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and that he offers eternal life freely by his grace. Now, what do we do? We freak ourselves out. We try to muster up enough courage and strength. Oh, I've got to tell them about it. We use our napkin more for wiping our forehead than our mouth, that kind of thing. That's flesh. That's flesh. It's not motivated by the Spirit. It's not pouring out of an affection for Christ and what he's done. So notice I'm doing the very thing that I hate, verse 16. But if I do the very thing, there's the action. I do not want to do, there's the will, the desire. I agree with the law. Confessing that the law's good. If it's pointing out where I'm wrong, and I know that I'm wrong, I can't help but to look at it and go, this thing's perfect. Because it's such a bright spotlight on my wrongness. That's how wrong I am. Verse 17, so now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Does everybody see where he's having to make this separation within himself, the struggle of the flesh and the spirit? In fact, let's do this real quick. Hey, Mitch, you could take us to Galatians 5. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. 16 through 18, Galatians 5. You got it, Dave? Here we go. Look at this. But I say, walk by the Spirit. Now notice walking has to do with how you live your life. By the Spirit. That's how you obey the Lord. And you will not carry out the desires of the what? There's the problem. The flesh and the Spirit. The flesh and the Spirit. Paul left the word Spirit back in verse 6. He hasn't brought it into this current part of the conversation. It says here, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. In fact, what that actually says is, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit like in a warring way, like a, like a vicious way. And the spirit against the flesh, it lusts after the flesh, against it. They're hostile to one another. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you're led by the spirit, uh-oh, look what Paul, the ace that he pulled out of his pocket and threw it on the table. You are not under the what? Everybody notice he didn't say flesh there? Isn't that interesting? He's showing us the battle between flesh and spirit. And he opts to say you're not under the law. Why? Because the law does nothing but arouse our flesh to sin more. It is death. 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 Watch. Back to Romans, verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. Is that true? Can you say that today? And can you rejoice in it? Can you rejoice in the fact that nothing good dwells in you? Pastor, this isn't helping my self-esteem very much. I'm going to tell you a little secret in the most loving way I possibly can. God doesn't care. God does not care about our self-esteem. Because if our esteem is found, I mean, self, you, esteem, build up. If you're building you up, guess who's not? The Lord. We need Christ's esteem. That's what we need. So notice, in order for Christ's esteem to take place in my life, I've got to recognize that I'm totally nothing. Nothing good dwells in me. Rejoice in that. Why? Because in all of my faults, Jesus Christ fills the holes perfectly. 
Paul is coming to some very true confession. I'm of the flesh, sold into bondage under sin. He says in verse 17, I'm no longer the one doing it. Sin dwells in me. He says in 18, nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. I will it and I want it. And remember, the will's part of the soul, right? Mind, will, and emotions. I want to do it so bad, but I'm not. I'm paralyzed. Verse 19, for the good that I want, that I desire, I do not do. There is no action. But I practice the very, oh, what's that word? Evil. You got any questions about what sin is? Evil. I'm a Christian who practices evil. Why? Because I'm trying to gain acceptance because I'm trying to grow by keeping a standard rather than laying down my life, crucifying my flesh and saying there's no hope in it. God, if I'm going to be anything, it's got to be you doing it. The good I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. I added this to Charlie here. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? This is something that Jeremiah was dealing with. You know how much you go through the Proverbs? And again, when you go through Proverbs, heart and mind are interchangeable with one another. But it's talking about what goes on in the soul. And it talks about the the fact that inside of it, there is nothing but corruption all the time. It would be cool if I had spiders pop out of that or something. Anyway, good visual for everybody at home, right? Moving on. Whatever. Okay. It's hard, yeah. Okay, verse 20. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Now, here's a short little summation that we need to grasp. Anybody here use the Schofield Bible? Anybody have that? Why not? Okay, some of you do. Praise God. Schofield has a very interesting note in this section. And he says, if you look at the book of Romans, there are actually six laws that are brought up in the book of Romans. It's not just one. It's not just the law of Moses. There's six laws that are brought up. We're going to look at three of them, and we're going to look at one of them next week. The other two are back in chapter 3. But I want to show you something because everybody see 21. Let's read 21 through 23 and let's see how this works and then we'll back up and break it down. I find then that the principle that evil, sorry, the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Everybody see that word principle? Everybody see it? If you have an ESV, what's it say? Law. It's the exact same word as law throughout the entire thing. Why it's translated principle there, I think that maybe the translators are trying to get our attention that it might be something different so we're not always thinking the law of Moses. So I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Good googly moogly. To sort some of this out, I'll put together a PowerPoint. If you want to take notes or just check it out, that's fine. Here are the three principles that are brought up in Romans 7. The very first one, 
is known as, or sorry, let's talk about principle first. It's the Greek word namos, N-O-M-O-S. And it means literally law. It's the idea of a custom or a rule or a norm that's been set in place to to handle or, or, or it's going to set a standard in some way. What's interesting is Romans 7.21, I can't read that. Romans 7.21 is the only time that the NASB translates namos as principle. All the other instances of namos are translated as law. Law must not be automatically understood as the law of Moses. Don't let your mind do that. Context determines meaning. And in Romans 7, 21 through 25, there are three different kinds of namos mentioned. And it's important to see how they interact with each other. Number one is the law of sin. This is also what is known as indwelling sin. And it's within the person since birth. It's the source from which sins come. It is ingrained here. Can't get away from it. You never will till you die. In fact, when we talk about the three tenses of salvation, I have been saved from my sins, the sins that were committed. I hopefully am being saved as I walk in the Spirit. I am being saved from the power of sin in my life. But when we talk about glorification, I will be saved. We're talking about being saved from the presence of sin altogether. Thank God this body goes away. That's a good thing. That's why whenever the rapture happens and your body is raised up to meet your spirit and soul in the air, it is transformed. Why? Because this ain't going to cut it in Jesus' presence. This ain't going to do any good. We're going to say, hi, Lord, and our flesh is going to go and done. You want that? I don't. Thank God he transforms it. That's a grace. Here's the problem with the law of sin. It is greater than your will. It is greater than your will. It prevents us from keeping the law of God and it wages war against the inner man. What you really want to do, that's what fights you, is the law of sin. Excellent quote. If you get the opportunity, Andrew Murray has written a book called Absolute Surrender. Get it? Read it. Fantastic reading amazing reading. Smite your face off, I promise. It's a good one. Grab it. What has God given us our will for? Had the angels who fell in their own will the strength to stand? And you know how old it was. Verily no. Which for you youngins, it's truthfully no, you youths. Truthfully no. The will of the creature is nothing but an empty vessel in which the power of God is to be made manifest. The creature must seek in God all that it is to be. Isn't this what Paul told us? The very good I want to do, I can't do. Instead, I find myself doing evil. Everything in him wants to go in this one direction to be pleasing to God. But when it comes time to put action to the desires, it falls flat. Why? Because the law of sin has dominance over him because he's trying to keep it. Because it is the standard which is over his life. The second type of law that we see in this passage the law of God. Now we know this one, right? It's holy, it's good, it's righteous, it's perfect, it's spiritual, and it's often called the law of Moses. The only reason why it's called the law of Moses is because that's how Judaism saw it in the first century, and that's how they dealt with it. Let's back away from that a little bit, and let's call it what it is. It's the law of God, and it's awesome. The law was designed to lead one to life, not to give it. By exposing our sin and our need, it creates a crying out for the Savior. The sin nature, the law of sin, singular, sees the law as a way 
of salvation. Now, don't tell me that this doesn't resonate with you, that you haven't tried to operate in some performance. Well, if I just do this, maybe God will love me more. We usually make those types of claims with God after we've committed something that we would consider a heinous or unusual sin. I can't believe I did that. Anybody ever sinned and you can't believe what you did? No, none of you, right? Good grief. What? Just today? Just Jay. Great. It's a crazy thing when you are aghast because of the sin that you've committed. You walk away from a situation, you think, oh my gosh, what have I just done? And you couldn't control it. There was something in you that compelled you to go in a direction and you couldn't understand it, but you were there. Why am I doing this? I find myself in the midst of this. Oh my gosh, what are the consequences of this thing? You think David went out looking to commit adultery? You think David was like, you know what? I think a murder is a good thing to plan right now. Everybody see it was motivated by fear. It was motivated by flesh. There was nothing of God in that. Now the law of God is perfect and holy. They can never give life. But we have a third kind of law. This is the law of my mind. Paul makes the separation here. He says here, one-third of the soul, the suke, right? Mind, will, emotions. So notice the mind and the will in there, what I want to do, what I desire to do, I can't do it. Mind and will are involved. Does this sound like an emotional passage to you? Yes, we wouldn't stamp it bipolar if it wasn't. I want to do this. I'm not doing this. I want to do this. It's like he's arguing with himself. You ever felt like that? Let me tell you this. That is not the norm of God expecting it in our lives. Sadly, it's the norm for us all too often. When we find ourselves in that struggle, it's because we haven't believed the word and we haven't submitted ourselves to the spirit. It's usually because we're so concerned about doing and finding a way out and reasoning our way through it. And I have the perfect plan and I've gotten everything in line. And we're actually little weasels running through one of those obstacle courses of paper, towel, roller, carpet, whatever. You get it. We find we're meeting a dead end. Because we simply won't know God's word and wait on God. Let him lead us. Now, here's the thing about the law of our minds. It agrees with the law of God. It's in perfect agreement. In fact, you research that idea of what Paul's saying here. I want to do those things, right? I'm totally in tune with it. It's right. In fact, if I do what is wrong, it even points out how much more right the law is. So his mind is working through it. It says here, it is harmonious with the inner man. In fact, I would say it this way. It's completely in line with your conscience. You realize one day at the judgment, check it out, Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Your conscience is something that will stand to either accuse you or excuse you at the judgment seat of Christ. Look it up. Because your conscience is always in tune with the law of God because it is essentially what's going on in the inner man. It's constantly in battle with the law of sin. That shouldn't surprise us, what we saw in Galatians 5. And it seeks to work in tangent with the will, but it's paralyzed by the law. Hands want to move forward, but they just can't. It's like, anybody know those? Mimes? Yeah. Why can't they get out of that box? Finally, you're like, you dumb mime, just walk forward. Can't. I'm paralyzed. I'm paralyzed by the law of sin. It keeps me ineffective and makes me sin 
and sin and sin the more I try to keep it. So, the regenerate mind, the believer, recognizes that the law of God is not a means of changing the flesh, even though the regenerate mind resonates with everything that the law of God espouses. There is simply no internal power that can please or be pleasing to God. That's really what the weakness, that's really what Paul's trying to show us by the law. The answer's not in you. It wasn't in you for justification. It's not in you for sanctification. It's definitely not in us for glorification. At no aspect of our salvation with God is it ever us. It's all of him. Now, it's embarrassing how long it took me to do this, but I'm going to go ahead and show it to you anyway. That's how it works. Like three boxes and some arrows, why is that bad? Have grace on me. The law of my mind. It wants to agree with the law of God. It does. It wants to get there. But the law of sin, bing, 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 ricochets it. To keep me ineffective for doing anything that is God glorifying, anything that is pleasing whatsoever. Let me make it crystal clear. You can never please God in your life according to the flesh. It will never work. We're taking a picture. I've been working on that pose. I think verse 24 is one of the greatest verses that you and I, as incredibly privileged children of Jesus Christ, could ever read. Because now, here's the bottom. We've heard of people that have troubled lives. Well, they're, they're not ever going to get any better until they hit the bottom, right? That's true for the Christian as well. There will never be a move up until we hit the absolute bottom. Never. Never. I'm convinced this is why drug rehab things don't work with people. Number one, it's completely devoid of God. Number two, it's about surrounding yourself with better people. Better people what? Who are sinners? Yeah. So they're just going to be okaying other sin in my life? That's not the body of Christ. That's not the word of God. There's no power of the Spirit in that. So what conclusion does Paul come to? In fact, I will go ahead and tell you this. This is true. None of us will do anything pleasing for God until we've come to a verse 24 experience. So let me muster everything that I can to communicate it to you. Wretched man that I am! Who will save me from this body of death? Because there comes a point where you have to get so discontent with yourself, so discontent with your own actions and failures, so unnerved by doing the same thing over and over and over and still getting the same poor results, sitting back on your couch when you have a clarity moment and asking, God, does any of this matter for your glory? Is any of this going to be worth anything? Because here's the thing, if we're striving in death, if we're striving in the flesh, the answer is clearly from Romans 7, no. It will amount to nothing. Why is that, God? I loved you. I tried. I got in there. I worked hard. I put in extra hours. 
I put my nose to the grindstone. That's like getting in a car and pushing the gas pedal and not looking out the window. I went really fast, really hard in one direction with everything I had. Great. And you hit a brick wall. And that brick wall is self. The self has to die. It has to be crucified. And we have to come to a point where it says, how wretched I am. How sick am I? How destitute am I? How bankrupt? How broken? Well, you just need to get your act together. That will never happen. And as long as we're pointing people in that direction, you can guarantee a stagnant and barely surviving church. That is the body of Christ with a faint pulse. Or let's look at it another way. We will never do God things if we keep getting in God's way. Never. So let me ask a question. Don't answer out loud. Have you come to the point of recognizing that you're wretched? That's a pretty good example, isn't it? Wretched man that I am, who will set me free? Who's going to deliver me from this body of death where sin dwells? Who's going to take care of this sin? What I love is the person who takes care of sin is the person who took care of sins. And look what he says. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Because God's answer is what? Jesus. God's answer is not a plan. It's not a prescription. It's not a formula. It's not a read the Bible in a year. It's not keep yourself a prayer book. It is not go out and do good things for the poor. That is not God's plan for manifesting righteousness in our lives. God's plan for us is Jesus. That's it. You say, that sounds too simple. If it's so simple, then why is it so elusive? Because we get caught up in all kinds of things. We'll invest ourselves in tons of things. But it's often the rings around the bullseye of Christ. This is a good church. I've heard horror stories about pastors in some churches. I've had a deacon two inches from my nose spitting in my face talking about how I should be dead in the ditch. I've had some bad church experiences. This is a good church. And I don't say this like I'm trying to call out or convict somebody. Convicting is not my responsibility. That's the Holy Spirit. But I will say this, regardless if we're a good church, we will never be God's church until it's none of me and all of him. Until Jesus Christ is our answer for everything. Until somebody asks us for the hope that we have in us. When we're in our social circles and they're asking the question or we're bringing a point of view to the table and if the answer does not include Jesus Christ, we haven't got the message. Are you saying that we have to live for him 24-7? I'm saying that you wouldn't live without him at all. So why would you want to waste one breath, one second, one moment not exalting him? Where else are we going to point people? Where else are they going to go? What other direction or person is not going to fail them? 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here's the problem he ends up with. So then, here's what's going on. On the one hand, I myself, with my mind, law of the mind, am serving the law of God. I perfectly resonate with everything that God has called for in holiness and righteousness and perfection. Here's the problem. But on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. I hate leaving us there. In fact, whoever wrote in chapter 8, verse 1, silly, silly person. That's a terrible chapter break. Give us hope. Give us hope. I'm not going to do it. But I will ask you to do this because it comes to mind. Go to Colossians 1. We'll end here. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 24. Because I want to show you this foreign realm of the Spirit. And Paul is an incredible demonstration of this. Forgive me, Mitch, that I don't have it up there. Colossians 1, look at verse 24. Now I rejoice in my what? Okay, time out. What? What? Are you sure? Because he just tacked the word rejoicing on it. And I don't know about you, but rejoicing is, mm, yeah! Praise God! Barbecue, yes. It is, I don't care who looks. I just want to praise the Lord! That's rejoicing. In suffering? Isn't it interesting that Paul doesn't say, I pray that the Lord would get rid of my suffering? I'll tell you this. Because when we operate in the flesh, we're concerned about physical deliverance. When we operate in the spirit, we're concerned about just knowing him more. There's a difference. There's the line. Let me tell you this. Paul has way more to talk about praying about spiritual matters than physical matters. He says, now rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, isn't that the problem? I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church. And filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now that doesn't mean that Christ's death wasn't sufficient. It means that because he lives, his body still suffers according to righteousness sake. Because we stand in righteousness. So his body is living and active and moving. Why? He's the head of the body. He says here, verse 25. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God. Bestowed on me for your benefit. So that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which was hidden from the past ages and generation, but has now been manifested to his saints. In other words, the dispensation of the church age. Verse 27, to whom God willed to make it known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, pay attention, Christ in who? You! And what is it? The hope of glory. There's a life lived in the Spirit. Rejoicing in suffering and recognizing that the greater goal is that we are submitting so that Christ in us, the hope of glory, is being made known because God is preaching through every life to every person. I have two questions. I'm going to answer the first one for you. 
What areas of your life depend on the Lord? All of them. You know the answer to that, don't you? All of them. Yes, we agree? Yes, you can just nod if you don't like being verbal. Here's my second question. In what areas of your life are you depending on the Lord? If we can sit here in common agreement as the church and say, yeah, my flesh is not going to come out with anything good, positive, awesome, spiritual, God-glorifying, God-pleasing, I'm not going to make God smile in this. It's not going to happen. This is death. But yet every area of my life depends on him. All of them are. So we can admit that. So here's the question. What areas are you actually putting in his hands? I mean, this is what it's about. This is what it is to walk in the spirit, to manifest Christ in our lives, is to finally hold up our hands and say, I surrender all. That's a song for Christians, not unbelievers. God is bringing me to the point of recognizing that I need to be arrested and get my hands off my life. Why? Because it's not worth living. So I need to stop trying. Instead, it's Christ in me, the hope of glory. That's the difference. That's the difference. If you know every area of your life is dependent on him, are you trusting him with it now? Are you bound and determined to get a handle on your sin? I'm going to take care of it. Just don't need to do that anymore. I'm just going to try harder. Well, I want to please the Lord in this way. Instead of stopping and asking a question, God, what do you want? God, what do you want? Do you realize how dangerous that prayer is? Do you realize that this church would be set on fire if we all came to a wretched man experience and just said, God, my heart finally just wants what you want. Just what you want here. We are not some tiny little podunk, hole-in-the-wall, small-town church. We are the body of Christ, bought with blood, going to be delivered into glory. Our destination is sure, and the power that is going to make things like that happen is the Spirit of God Himself. Don't sell your identity short. We are who Christ says we are and who He has made us to be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would make us acutely aware of the end of ourselves. That grace is abundant beyond just getting us in the door with you. But you want to carry us everywhere. Thank you that your blessings are overflowing. Incredible. Almost insane because we understand who we are and we see nothing but grace, 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 grace. What profound love that you have on wretched people and how amazing it is that you want to use us as vehicles for your glory. Father, I pray that stirs us to praise you. Pray, Father, that the Spirit would search us now. Convict us where it's necessary. Clean house. Help us to see, open our blind eyes to the fruitlessness that maybe we've been bondage to for so long. And instead, we would look to Christ, our Lord. 
Thank you, God, for a wonderful, merciful Savior. We pray it in his holy name. Amen.